You just have to stay. That's what love is. You stay. Even though nobody rewards you for it, and you always feel like you're screwing up, and a lot of the time you are, a mother stays. You figure out the rest. This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Hoagie. And I'm Mike Caputo. Tonight we're discussing episode three of season two of Nosferatu, The Night Road. And joining us later tonight, Charles P. Wilson III who is the illustrator of the graphic novel The Wraith and has done a bunch of title card work on Nosferatu. We have a great conversation with him coming up at the end of the episode, so definitely do not miss that. The Night Road was written by Lucy Thurber, who is a staff writer on the show and also who wrote the season one, episode five, The Wraith. And it was also directed by first-time Nosferatu director Craig McNeil. I love this new blog. We talked to Jamie a little bit about that, about, you know, balancing returning directors and getting new people in. So it's interesting to uh, have Mr. McNeil, whose credits are all kind of in the thriller genre. I think this was a pretty natural fit and I think was cut with someone who has a good feel for the material even if he hasn't worked on the show before. Definitely. And the way that this episode moves, they really gave him a lot to chew on this first round. I didn't expect half of what happened to happen in episode three already. The pedal to the metal analogy that we got from Joe and, and, and which he's been saying since the series wrapped recording back in January has been so true. I mean, these episodes have no fat on them at all. They're just laden with great exposition and great storytelling and just moving the narrative forward like super fast. I looked down at the clock today and we were more than halfway through the episode. I was like, what the fuck? Exactly. And it, it just starts off really, really creepy, really, really tense, ends with this giant confrontation. And I don't know where it's going to go from here. I mean, how can they continue to keep up this tension? Everybody says they do continue to keep up this tension. The way they're moving the chess pieces around the board, it's really hard to peg where they're going to go. I mean, next week, I mean, not to jump ahead, but next week's episode is called The Lake House. You know, so we only spent about three seconds there after waiting for Vic to come out of the shorter wave for a full week, because we didn't see her last week, uh, you know, as soon as she heard it was a dry house, she was bounced like, peace, I'm out, back to Haverhill. And it sounds like we're going back there maybe next week. So I can't even begin to predict where we're going to go. We're just moving so fast and everywhere. I I'm loving it, though. You know, there's no time to be bored. The pulse has quickened the entire time. It really has. What was your uh, general feeling uh, overall on this episode? We basically have this amazing beginning that starts us off at, I guess what we find out later is called Candy Mountain. And we get this mystery sort of unpacked with in, in, in that time. And then we end with like this confrontation with the major characters and we're only in the third episode. So I don't, I don't really know what's, what's going to happen from there. I was really surprised that we did get the Manx-Vic showdown, or at least a showdown, so, so, so soon. Let's put a pin in that, and we'll get, we're going to get to that. But I, 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 with you, was really surprised that we got that so early, but also really happy. Like, I, I like the fact that we got them, like, measuring each other out. You know, this is the first time Vic's getting to see resurrected Manx, and, you know, Manx has got a uh, score to settle. 
And, and so this is the first time he really gets to see Vic in the flesh since he's come back to life. Yeah, he has a really new energy about him, and I'm really loving it. And I'm also loving all of these new names and terminology that that got thrown around at Parnassus. Um, I'm really just all about the, the sort of weird, strong, creative, twisted, childish language that they have. And, and I, we'll dig into that a little bit more, too, of course. And then there was the Tom Savini cameo. Uh, anyone who knows you knows you are a big Tom Savini fan. Why, why don't you tell people who don't know, uh, who don't follow uh, the genre so well or, or so closely, why don't you tell people about who Tom Savini actually is? He's an actor. I think a lot of people probably know him from, from Dust Till Dawn, where he also was another kind of creepy guy in a, in a, in a bar. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's a, a special effects wizard, a, a makeup department wizard, um, kind of came about during the 80s sort of gore slasher film era. The reason why he's probably got this cameo is his connection with Joe Hill. Joe Hill was about, I guess, 10 years old or so when he was in the movie Creep Show, and Tom Savini did a lot of the effects and makeup for the makeup for uh, Creep Show, and kind of served as Joe Hill's babysitter a little bit on the set. So we've seen Tom have a cameo in Lock and Key, and now we see he was on set for a day, it looks like, and got to be at Parnassus. He got to be a strong creative, which is really cool. Snake had some troubling looking teeth, uh, just to pick up on his cameo. Uh, it almost looked like the kind of teeth that they give the ghoul children, which I thought was an interesting parallel. You know, as far as I know, I don't know that, I don't know that Snake ever took a ride in the Wraith, but his teeth were definitely kind of pointed and jagged the same, the, you know, the, I mean, almost like piranha like kind of teeth. So I wonder if that's just a commonality. Yeah, of... like like of of just the dark side of the strong creatives, like that their dark powers sort of twist them and bring that out of brings that out of them and gives them that kind of dental redo. <laughs> we spent a lot of time last week when we were delving into Manx's past and kind of the creation of Manx the villain. We talked about our shared love of world building and and mythology and really digging into that lore of a show. And we thought we got it with last week, and we did. This week, I mean, they just blew the doors off the box with world building. For everything, everything we learned in Parnassus just expanded this universe tenfold. And at the beginning of the episode, we got an expansion of Christmas Land and, and the surrounding environs. You want to take us through uh, the opening scene at Candy Mountain? It's still tripping me out, really. Um, we kind of see that there's a version of Sleigh House in Charlie's Inscape. And Millie finds it, you know, as she sort of leaves Christmas land chasing after the, the Wraith for a second. I love that she followed him out of the gate. I, I, You know, we saw her be defiant with her father last week, but that's one thing. And being a little lippy is one thing. Actually leaving the gates of Christmas land? You have to imagine this is the first time since 1938 or whatever that she's left the gates of Christmas land. So upset at her father she was. And then didn't turn around and go back in after he drives away. She goes exploring. Were you surprised that she took such a bold step? Yeah, I think it's just another product of being left on her own a really long time and sort of starting to doubt her father. And and like we talked about last week, the, the sort of cracks in that devotion because he's broken promises. And she's starting to maybe sense that his motivations are not all about her and about keeping the kids happy and safe in Christmas land as much as he wants everybody to believe that they are. Let's talk about Inscape Slayhouse because there are some really interesting things dropped here. 
here. And who knows if they're important? Who knows if they're just great Easter eggs? But let's talk about them. So we saw we saw a couple different rooms. We saw a creepy room with a kid coffin, kid sized coffin in it. That's tripping cool. me out really hard. Like I really I really want to know about that. And I'm hoping that that sort of becomes one of those things that well, we talked about last week that that pays off if, if you really watch the show and if you really pay attention to the show because it wasn't you know, something that was completely obvious. Um, the camera focused on it for a second, but that was it. Yeah, and, and with the darker wood on the floor, unless you happen to be really paying attention, it's very easy that you miss it, honestly. So, and Millie herself, that box would be too small for her. So what child-sized coffin, who who did that belong to? You know, the, the way the kids come to Christmas land, they don't really ever get pine boxes, so what is the story about that? You know, I definitely want to know more. Not a big surprise that there was a Christmas room, right? But let's right. talk about the bedroom. It seemed to me that this might have been Millie's childhood bedroom. She seemed really familiar with it. What was your impression of her when she walked into the bedroom? I thought that at first, too. And then I also sort of wondered if it wasn't her mom's bedroom because sort of the clothing that she picked out or put on, it looked too big for her. You know, like a little girl loves to try on their mom's clothes, loves to play dress up, loves to have grown up things on. And, you know, again, and then gravitates to the vanity where the makeup and the other items are. And that just seemed it just seemed like the, her mom's bedroom to me. But but I, I'm not sure. I'm really not. It, it might have been, it might have been a very small bed, but I guess back in yesteryear, couples slept in smaller beds than they sleep in today. There, there was definitely some impact when she picks up the cat brooch, uh, the little cat brooch. So th there was definitely familiarity there, which I guess all begs the question, was Slay House her childhood home? Slay House is in Gum Barrel, Colorado. I thought they lived in Wyoming before the end times, before Christmas Land was created. So I wasn't sure. I don't know. I'm very confused. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little confused, and, it, and it's very mysterious. And it gets even crazier when we see her dead mom in the mirror. Super creepy because she kind of looked the way people look, uh, the way the ghoul kids look when they come to Christmas Land. But she also looked like a, a much more desiccated corpse bride. She she looked more dead even than the ghoul kids. If, if that makes sense. It's very weird. And it's got me really thinking about how she was there in the car when Manx's Inscape was created. And was she, I mean, was she, I mean, she's being chomped on, but she was, was she in between deaths? Did something happen? Is Manx keeping her here somehow outside of Christmas land because she kind of got stuck there because she ended up there in the car anyway? It's really a, uh, it really creates a lot of questions, and it really makes me think, and I'm really loving this part. Oh, my God. I love it so much. I mean, this is this is what we're talking about, people. This is what's going to make you want to turn in, tune in next week because you need to know, to any showrunner out there, to anyone looking to write a script, this is how you invest emotionally your viewers because you're 100% right. Is she there because she wants to be? Is she choosing to be there? Or is she a creation like Christmas Land of a manifestation of Manx's Inscape? Did he furnish Christmas Land with a candy mountain with a version of Slay House with his own version of his dead wife? I don't know, but I want to find out. It's really creepy. And there was also another part of the house that we probably didn't mention, which was this locked door with somebody banging behind it and a voice. What did, what did the voice say? Because I couldn't even make it out on my audio. So we have screeners and screeners do not come with 
the benefit of closed captioning, unfortunately. As a standard rule, I watch all shows that I watch, if I can, with with closed captioning, just for this exact kind of thing. Ditto. So So I was forced to listen to it at max volume over and over again, pressing my headphones deep into my ear. This is what I got. It's a very low voice. It's a guy, obviously. It says, let me out. The best sledding is, and then it sounds either something like Dale or The Hill. And then it said, it sounds like he says beyond the grove. So oh. let me out. Let, oh. let me, yeah. So let me <laughs> out. The best sledding is for sure is what he says. And then the end gets kind of garbled. So it's, it's possibly the best sledding is the Dale or the Hill beyond the grove. What is happening in that house? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And who, and who, yeah. Who is that? Like, who is that? <laughs> Yeah, and and you know it's kind of scary. Millie was just all about like trying to open that door. Didn't even have any fear. Just was right there. Or was gonna let it out. Whatever the heck's in there. Say what you want about Millicent Manx. She is a ballsy, courageous little girl, and I am all about it. Uh, before we move out of Slayhouse, though, because she eventually does kind of freak herself out when she has her run-in with her mother. The the moment where her mother kind of grabs her, Ghoul Mom, we'll call her, grabs her and shows her the mirror again, and it's not Ghoul Millie. It's not ghoul Millie in like a regular kid dress, uh, yeah. you know, age, age uh, period appropriate dress. That seemed to scare her more than anything. Yeah. I don't think she really wants to remember what she did. I think she might be starting to face that in a way, though. I think maybe that's what we're starting to point to here and maybe why Manx doesn't want her out there, out of the gates, up at Candy Mountain. Oh. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, when he reprimands her for boy, being naughty and, and disobeying her rules and leaving the gates of Christmas land and, you know, threatening her with the naughty list, uh, he's just straight up terrified. I mean, Manx does not want people to know his secrets, and that extends to his daughter. He does not want her to be poking around whatever is on top of Candy Mountain, whoever is in that room, whatever Ghoul Mom is doing. I'm curious if it's that she doesn't want to remember her pre-Ghoul self, or if she doesn't really remember and the thought of it scared her because it looks so different than how she probably sees herself. It's one of those two things, but I'm not really sure. There's a psychology going on there for sure. Yeah. Or maybe even a combination of both because I mean, it's, it's horrifying either way when you think about what happened to this little girl and what she is now. It's, it's a lot of questions flying around. From there, we go into our uh, coal. We go into our credits and we come back and we are uh, entering the lake not Haverhill proper. It turns out Chris McQueen has gone off the grid and is living at, well, I, I, who knows what Chris McQueen is actually doing, but he's got a gun and he doesn't drink. What was your take on eight years older Chris McQueen? You know, he's writing again, I think. You know, his guitar is there. Definitely got the, the bachelor pad look going on. And yeah, I'm glad that he's got the dry house. Definitely glad to see that. Took him long enough, but I'm proud of Chris McQueen. Me too. It was actually, I was actually much happier to see both parents this week than I had thought I would be. I was not a big fan of theirs. Not, not the acting, the, the, the characters. I, they were just, they're just such bad parents in their own ways in the first season. That being said, it really was nice to see them again. That whole scene about the dry alcohol and then the fact that she's like, you know, the next time we see her, she's dirt kicking up, leaving the property when he says, whatever, there's no alcohol in this house. And he doesn't, he's not mad at her, but girl, like you're hiding little bottles of liquor in your motorcycle jacket, you know, like you've got a problem and you think she would appreciate that Chris knows the signs, knowing what he was like growing up. 
Were you surprised that she left so fast? I thought we were going to spend some more time there since we've waited for so long to get there. Yeah, and and it just it points to like you said again that that she's got this major problem because she had to get out of there, and you know we end up over at, at Linda's over at her mom's house, and and it's just funny because it definitely seems like she's taking her father's footsteps, and I mean mm-hmm. Linda even calls her out at one point. It's like, who are you, Chris McQueen? Oh so, my god, you know. I I loved <laughs> I loved how she laid laid Vic out. You know, uh, yeah, she goes. What do you, Chris McQueen, call them? That was fantastic. That was fantastic. This was a version of Linda that I could get behind. You know, she 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 wasn't yeah. mad that she hadn't seen her daughter in a long time, but she also wasn't going to just be her friend either. She was going to give her shit. She was really happy to see her, really, you know, wanted to talk about the babies and stuff, but at the same time, isn't going to let her fail herself. And it just seemed like there was a new respect there where Linda wasn't treating her like a kid, but, you know, like the parent that she is and that, you know, she's giving her real talk about what she needs to do to step up. And it's sort of making Vic think, but also making Vic want to drink. Uh, interesting to see that both McQueen parents seem to be doing pretty okay in their individual lives eight years on. Like you said, Chris is dry. Chris is writing. Chris is making music again. He seems to have his shit kind of together. A little Bear grills in the woods for sure. But all together in a better place than he was when we last saw him. And Linda's got her new Madonna-like haircut. She's got Sean, the love of her life. Who the fuck is Sean? Can we put a dollar on this bet? I make you bet Sean ends up being a minx henchman. That's Do my it. guess. Let's let's see that. I'm ready for that. Because of course, of course, you know, ultimately, none of these people are going to wind up happy. No one, got, no one makes that alive in this show. So, and and there's always ulterior motives. Somebody's always got a motive. So yeah, I mean, it just feels like something like that. There's always some kind of setup, and got to feel bad for Linda. So you know, Linda can't be happy. <laughs> Before we get into the interactions with Lou and, and stuff and where she actually has to kind of face her past a little bit, and before where she really gets drunk and goes down her pity party path of the Rizdeen road not taken, I was surprised that she's talking to Chris at the lake house in the five seconds that she was there. I need a job. I need a place to stay. Girlfriend was not just here for like a short stay. Vic was looking to like move here. I was shocked at that. That was not my impression of when she rode off on the shorter way two weeks ago. I thought she was going for more of like a hunting mission, not like a I'm gone or I'm gone boy gone. Were, were you surprised she was looking to put down roots back in the Northeast? I really was. I also thought maybe she was kind of just taking a break and, and just like taking a step back and like you said, going back to her roots, you know, wasn't really exp- Expecting her to be doing the whole sort of abandonment thing. She's, you know, not really, I guess, thinking very clearly or feeling very good about herself, obviously from her constant need to be drinking. The way she describes herself as a parent in the first the first interaction with Linda, she, she's basically like, I got drunk, I set the house on fire, and I don't have a phone because I threw it in the oven. In three clauses, she has summed up the last three days worth of her parenting skills. And it doesn't sound great, but she's also deep into her pity party here. You know, and when when alcohol is already a crutch for you and an increasing problem for you, having these kinds of self-destructive thoughts is not going to have a good ending. I was wondering while this episode was going on, you know, they're just saying, you know, you can never go home again. The, the idea that going home as an adult is really never going home. It's never going to be what you thought it was. All I could think of watching this episode was, man, how true is that? You know? 
you can't run away from your problems. Oh, have you very ever, much. Have you ever, have you ever yeah. tried to go home again? Oh, sure. Um, and it's it's just more of you see things in a different perspective. You're not the same person. And so you definitely kind of take it on a trip and you're sort of forced to reevaluate things in a different way because you are in a different place than you were when you first grew up there and, and sort of were brought up and, and formed yourself in this place. Linda goes, she, she bounces off to go to her next cleaning appointment and she leaves Vic alone. And, and Vic, to her credit, does pick up the phone and does try to get Lou on the phone. Were you surprised that he didn't take the call? Very unlike Lou move to not take the call. Yeah, but, you know, I kind of get that. You know, we see that kind of thing in relationships a lot. People kind of get stubborn and have their little moments. So, you know, I kind of figured they'd have that little bit of back and forth probably for a while after the fact that she just left. That being said, I thought Lou Carmody's voicemail was the greatest voicemail ever recorded by man. And actually, we have it now. We're going to give it a listen right here. Regrettably ensnared elsewhere. If you care to leave a message, I shall summon him upon his return. I just love the whole Carmody Manor thing, and and just his little faux his his faux Carmody accent he gives. Yes. It was so good. It was so yes, good. it was perfect. It was a great little sort of geek out moment. Uh, he's so good for those uh, the the character the actor who plays him, Jonathan uh, Langdon, and, and and the character of Lou is just so good for the really gentle levity. Even in the midst of the horror show, even in this episode, he makes me smile with his little nerd outs because I think it just speaks to me on a very real level because it's a lot of a lot of that is how I am also. Uh, even in the face of bad things, I always have room for like a pop culture reference. So I really like that. It endeared me to Lou big time. Yeah, and I think this show knows its audience pretty damn well. So I think building building those moments in is, is great fun for everybody. So we already mentioned the fact that we, we have a showdown in this episode between Vic and Manx. But well before that, we get a showdown between Wayne and Manx and Lou and Bing. Holy shit, guys. This is like episode three. And these guys, I mean, it was just the end of last episode in the graveyard of what might be that they're hatching the plan that they need to kidnap uh, Bruce Wayne McQueen. And here they are doing it, doing a, doing a, a daylight two-hander kidnapping. I was shocked. What, yeah, what was your take on this whole scene? Yeah, just seeing those lights flicker immediately, you knew something was about to happen. And the next thing you know, Bing drives up. And actually, I had to stop the episode for a minute at that moment. I was just, like, not even ready for that. It was too soon. I was like, I can't be seeing Bing standing in front of Wayne. Not I had the I had the exact same feeling. I was like, this is, I I I stopped the show to look at what the timestamp was for one thing in the episode. I was like, how how can we be this far to the episode? It must be super far into the episode that we're here already. But also, this is just episode three, and we're already getting this. My God, holy shit! This is this is happening. What did you think of Bing and his skills here? Were were, were you impressed? Uh, has Bing gotten better at child abduction? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like he's he's sort of better at creating this this little false persona and giving himself a fake name and coming up with a little bit of a a backstory even. But he's still kind of awkward about it. So sure. you know he's he's not quite smooth about it but he tries he's trying i feel like season one bing though would have gotten as far as handing over the license and the second lou would have asked him a question he would have like whacked him over the head with something 
You know, I feel like this Ethan Anderson version of Bing is a lot more, I don't want to say mature, because that connotes, like, I approve of what he's doing, which I don't. Child abduction is bad. Gassing people is bad. But I feel like he is, he's got, like, this kind of swagger or this confidence that he's never had before. And it's actually kind of really impressive to watch him work. It really maximizes his size, if that makes sense. I, I feel it as a conniving innocence. Like, there's still this naivety about him, but he's conniving and he's devious and he's dangerous and still all of those things at the same time. It's a really interesting, complex character. And the, the actor Dari is just so amazing at, at portraying, you know, sort of this gentleness and this horrible, creepy guy at the same time. Ugh, gets under my skin. He's really exploring, uh, Daria's, uh, this other aspect of being that we never really got to see in season one. Um, and again, I don't not, I'm not, I'm not sure if the show would chuck it up to eight years past, eight years of him having to be on his own, eight years of trying to get his master back to power, whatever it is in the interim, he's really opened up this other side to him that Dari, the actor is really putting on blast here. And it makes him so much more menacing because I think he's better at it now, but also it's character development. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, that person, that character really developed all the time," and it's usually taken in like a in like a like a positive way. Like, you know, they were a bad person, and then over the course of the show, they became a good person. Here, I mean it more just like more complex. If if he was a three D character season one, he's like a four D character now. Like he's existing in like an extra plane now. I feel like there's another there's a whole other side to him that we never got to see. Yeah, and I, I love that about the show because it's kind of doing that with all, all of our characters in a way by moving them forward eight years. It, it's giving us a chance to see each one of them develop and change and, and have, you know, a different take on their arc and, and let us see different parts of their psyche that we've never been able to see before. And this whole time that Bing is with Lou, it's all a ruse, you know, really, because yeah. the, the, the main goal is Wayne. And it's just a distraction, right? Because normally, you know, it was always whenever Bing and Manx would go on these kidnapping jobs in season one, it, one, it was always nighttime. And two, it was much more bumbling and less coordinated, I felt like. This had like a real plan to it. Distract Lou, keep Lou out of the way, get the Christmas music playing in the Wraith. Uh, I think they were playing Silent Night, which is one of my favorite Christmas carols. Tempt him with the siren song that Wayne is probably predisposed to want to follow. And it works. When Manx shows up, I was shocked. I thought for sure it was going to be Bing there standing over him, having knocked Lou out or something. Exactly. I was totally expecting Bing to be there capturing Wayne and taking him off somehow. And like you said, knocking out Lou and doing that sort of that, you know, the, the physical part of it. But I guess now that we have young Manx... Wayne just sort of runs off like, you know, he's being called by the Pied Piper almost to that race with its open door and its beautiful presence. And the uh, specific, I love the basketball there, even like tailored gift to the child. I mean, the Wraith and Manx, they know what they're talking about when they come to tempt these kids. Uh, and Charlie, for an undead guy who has now come back to life hasn't lost a step with the chill with the children right he's so smooth with that candy cane doing it out of the ear kind of thing complimenting, oh my God. 
Yeah. Uh, that he compliments Wayne for his, you know, asking him how he was feeling. And by the way, Wayne is a really thoughtful kid that he remembered the bleeding chest and was like, are you feeling better? I, I was actually touched by that. I was like, you are a really nice kid. Yeah, a little too sweet for Mr. Manx, who's really just oh, he's he was so good and so slinky, um, like a, like a, he reminded me of the Python in the Jungle Book for some reason, with that sort of hypnotizes you as he's wrapping his coils around you, and I, I yeah. sort of started seeing the candy cane, like you know, just basically like a fish hook reeling this kid in. All he was missing were like some like s's, like yes, come into the rain. <laughs> But, you know, like one of those kind of like snake thing. Very, very good call. The Jungle Book for sure. Yeah. You know, then we've got this whole time. Poor Lou. What's he see Bing's mask? He sees Bing's gas mask in the truck. Uh, on the front seat. And I mean, way to go, Lou, for being so heads up to even notice that. I was impressed that he would pick up on that because, and I think this is just part of Lou's personality, he was so courteous to this guy who could not answer a basic question about his Harley or what was wrong with it other than, does it start? Uh, I mean, even when he says, who recommended you? And he's like, yep, you're the Harley guy, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that was really some good comedy and some great acting between the two of them. Just sort of really, you really felt that awkward weirdness of Bing literally not knowing what he's talking about. And then Lou trying to be smooth once he sees that gas mask. And again, not very smart henchman like of Bing to just leave it there like that. But were you surprised that Lou actually threw the first punch in this situation? I was, oh my I was, God. I was so surprised and proud of Lou at everything in the scene. One, that he had the heads up the nose of the gas mask. Two, that he recognized it as a bad thing from Vic's past. Who knows how much he knows about the house asleep and all that stuff. But that he calls and he leaves he leaves Vic that message. And that he ends it by calling her, you know, his Obi-Wan. He do, Even in this uh, moment of distress, he does a total, like, you're my only hope, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> again, a really great nerdy moment there and really sweet. And again, just kind of shows the, the relationship in that way, too. Just in that, that moment of danger that he would also think to say that. Right? So good. And then... Uh, and you're 100% right. The fact that you could see him playing with the belt buckle on the strap down on the back of the bike. And, and I, w- I was watching him undo the buckle. I was watching Bing watch him watch the buckle. There was a lot of anticipation in this scene where they both knew something was going to happen. They both felt it all coming to a head. And then he just bitch slaps him with the with the belt buckle across the face. I was like, <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah, that was pretty fierce, and and I I thought it was like the strap at first. I didn't realize it was that giant honk of metal, just like whack right into the jaw, and yeah, that thing goes down, and and it was such a great, well directed scene too, because they basically shot so much of it from the ground, so you're sort of on the ground with them the whole time. Totally, and and then of course you think he's gonna get away, but then he doesn't. But then he kicks him in the face. Like it wasn't just the one shot with the butt buckle. Like he musters all of his energy and gives him a big Lou Carmody boot in the face, and then is able to get away. I have to think that that's the first time Lou has been in a physical fight ever in his life. Probably, and I mean bravo because he really like got two good shots in against a giant strong guy who was gonna kill him at that point. I mean we knew that was what he was gonna do. Uh, great point, because think how big and, and cuddly teddy bear size Luke Carmody is, and Bing still seemed to tower over him. 
I think that should give you the perspective on how big a person Bing really is. Because he made Lou look small, I thought, anyway. And yeah. so happy for Lou that he had the forethought and the ability and the heroism to defend himself that way. Meanwhile, we have Wayne resisting the dark side. This was a very this was a very Star Wars scene here. Speaking had- of Obi-Wan, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. See, they're pulling that in there all together, wrapping it all up. Yep, For sure, yep, yep. because you, you have you have Luke Skywalker resisting the outstretched hand of Darth Vader saying, Come with me, together we can rule the galaxy. And you know, and he doesn't. He gives the password, the password fails, and what a great look on Manx's face when he asked him for the password because Charlie's just like I I have no I I got no clue what you're talking about. I felt like those eyes burned me, and I was watching it through a screen. So yeah, you could probably Wayne's the back of his shirt was like flaming at that point as he was yeah. running away. And our boys they find each other and we're happy and they they they're safe for that moment. For that moment, and meanwhile. Vic is back in uh, Haverhill having herself a little pity party, but she finally picks up the phone, and it's the Colorado State Police. And total fake out, obviously, but the, the boys are fine. Uh, Minx, Minx and Bing must have bugged out. But what did you think? Because last week we got to see Lou give Vic some real talk about needing professional help, but he didn't really go too, too hard on her, even as she was leaving the house on her bike. This week, the gloves come off. What did you think of him laying her out here on the phone? Oh, I loved it. He was just totally pissed off, totally letting her know basically that she's going on a suicide mission and it's the dumbest thing she's ever thought of um, because he, he's basically calling her out saying you're, you, you think you're some superhero, but it's not heroic when you've got a little son who needs his mom. At the same time, I can also kind of see where Vic's coming from because how can she feel safe to be a mom when there's Charlie Manx still alive out there somewhere? So it's it's it's, sure. it's hard to sort of pick a side in this situation because they're both really right. I really do see where Vic is coming from. But at the same time, she left them alone and this is what happened. Now, maybe this still happens or some version of this happens if she doesn't hop on the shorter way and head back nor- back northeast. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe they don't attack Wayne so directly. Maybe they try and take her out first. Parents are supposed to be there to defend their kids, right or wrong, down with the ship. So I think I'm on Team Lou here, not Team Vic. But but I think you're right. There there are two sides, and like there are in every story, in every in every argument, there are two sides. But I think I'm Team Lou here. I think the best stories and, and the best shows and the best dramas and the best conflicts are the ones where you really can't necessarily clearly pick a side where both sides have their points both sides are right and so you're you're sort of pulled in both directions and and i love that kind of tension i love that those kind of situations and and the kind of stories that make you think like that actually before we go too much further though i actually pulled the clip of him uh telling vic off and and calling uh telling her that it's more bullshit than heroism uh let's take a listen to that whole uh clip right now you're going after max Look, Manx will keep coming until he finds us. He'll take you, he'll take Wayne. He wants me, Lou. He just he wants you dead, Vic. You go after him on your bridge to God knows where, and he's there waiting for you? He'll get what he wants. Look, I know I said some rough stuff the other day, but... You were right, I wasn't there. So be there now. Once I'm done with Manx. Okay, so you go on your suicide ride telling yourself that you're strong creative superhero bullshit whatever i can't stop you 
But I can tell you this. It's a lie. It's not heroic. Wayne doesn't need you dead. He needs his mother with him. Yeah, I mean, just hearing it again, I feel like he was he was really saying the kind of things that she needs to hear. Uh, but let, let, let's back up a second, though, because we had a couple of things where Wayne was able to see the lights flashing and hear some bells when Bing first arrives. And then when the Christmas music starts up, he's able to hear all these things, which I get the impression not every kid can hear the warning signs of their arrival. But when the state police are outside talking to Lou, we see... Wayne playing with the candy cane and the TV getting some static. I noticed that as well. So they're they're sort of throwing in this idea that, again, that there's a connection and that, I mean, this is my question. Can the kids of a strong creative have their own abilities? Is that what we're kind of seeing here? Is that what we're leading towards? Now, if you think back to the book, now the show didn't adopt this, but when the book starts, Vic McQueen is only like eight or nine years old, and it's the first time when she begins to manifest her powers. Now, Wayne is eight years old, so in the overall universe of Nosferatu, this is about the right age for him to begin manifesting powers if he is a strong creative. Maybe it's a basketball or, you know, something like that, or a, a video game controller. But I got a strong feeling from this whole scene, watching him interact with the environment, think Wayne may be a strong creative. I'm thinking so too. And we're going to maybe hopefully see a little bit more of that because again, it ties into the universe expansion that we're getting to see with this show. And, and I love all of, all of this side of it so very much. Just before we go, I have to give a shout out to Lou telling Vic uh, that she's going to hop on her bridge to God knows where. Because Bridge to God Knows Where sounds like the best mid-90s heavy metal album, like something Queensryche would put out uh, in like the mid-90s, or, you know, for sure. That definitely sounds like an album title. Like the B-side to Silent Lucidity. That's like the Bridge to God Knows Where. The Bridge to God Knows Where! You know, I'm seeing like that, more so. like a Styx cover from the 70s on that one. Oh, all cover. right. Bridge to God Knows Where. Show you know, my like age. That. I love it. <laughs> Come sail away. Come sail away. Uh, anyway, so while uh, Lou and uh, and Wayne are getting on the plane to uh, go see Tabitha Hutter and uh, Maggie, we have the big showdown of the night. Vic does hop on her bike, does hit the shorter way, and she finds her way to Parnassus. But before we get there, let's talk about what happens inside Parnassus with Charlie Manx. Yeah, the first thing we see is Manx uh, walking up to the bar, and there he is, Mr. Tom Savini, as Snake, uh, the strong creative um, with uh, dice. So there's a nice tongue-in-cheek joke there with snake eyes, uh, which you see when he rolls the dice. Um, yeah, good fun seeing seeing that. Uh, you know, I don't think we got as many people in the background as we did last season. Last year, when we went to Panassas, we got a lot of visual Easter eggs that the fans just ate up for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. Tonight, though, he sits down with his, he brings Abe. Uh, it was nice to see Abe again. He brings him a whiskey, and we get all sorts of world mythology and, and world building and lore dropped here. What were your big questions from this conversation? Like every other sentence was something weird. Okay, so I guess we first find out Manx wants to be introduced to somebody called the Hourglass. Um, Who the fuck is the Hourglass? 
and 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 then we hear this sort of conversation where Manx teases Abe and sort of it's sort of like this this sort of talk of the glory days almost where you hear about honest Abe and his empty forest on the night road and some kind of allusion to Manx helping him out and intervening with someone called the walking backwards man. I don't know what's going on, but I really need to see all of this. All of those things. I mean, it made me, I was sitting there wondering, are these allusions to other works, either Stephen King or to Joe Hill that I just wasn't picking up? Is this just good writing where they're dropping this shared history? Because last year we were introduced to Abe with zero context. It was their conversation. They talked about Jolene and they talked about him chasing Vic, but no context as to who these guys were other than they have known each other for a long time. Tonight, we have all of this dropped backstory between these two as if we were just eavesdropping on them. And I love that. I love when the show drops that because it gives you exposition. It tells you something about these characters and deepens how long they've known each other. But it doesn't tell you really a fucking thing about what you really want to know, which makes me want to know more. Exactly. You're you're still left questioning this. There's lots of things to fill in. There's lots of things to wonder about. There's no just flat in your face exposition. You're just given these little 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 appetizers. Yeah. And I, I, and I, like you said, again, the the whole world building of the strong creatives because you know this is this is sort of the supernatural mythology part of the show and a lot of the fun. So I really I'm really tickled that they've poured so much into this now. I think for me, the big takeaways for this conversation were, one, the who is the hourglass? Because Abe is reticent to introduce Charlie to him. This is, so whoever he is, he seems to be a bigwig in this world of strong creatives, this strong creative community, uh, this dark side strong creative community. The hourglass seems to be a man of note for whatever services he renders, who knows. But also, Abe, honest Abe, Uncle Abe, is Millie's godfather. What? Yeah, I love that little throwaway line, too. I mean, it's just so much packed into this one little bit of scene. We could probably talk about it for three more hours because it's so fun. Uh, so true. So true. And also, I love the fact that Millie knows to call the bar. You know, she's like, if her dad, she can call the bar. She's kind of like Bart Simpson calling Moe's, you know, trying to do like a phone prank. But their conversation, their conversation was really interesting because uh, he freaks out. We talked about this at the top of the episode. But were, were you surprised how either scared or angry, I, I'm not sure what emotion it was, uh, maybe it was a mix of both, uh, but his reaction to finding out that she went outside the gates and up to Candy Mountain? Yeah, he's seriously perturbed at this. And, and I think she started, kind of got the point that she's kind of got to play nice with Daddy because you kind of saw her back down a little bit and be like, okay, Dad, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Like, knowing full well that this is the little girl who's going to go and do what she wants as soon as she gets off the phone. But she's she's playing her part just like he's playing his now. I think she's she's kind of Daddy's little girl for real now. There comes a part in every kid's life where they eventually start to test the boundaries of what they can get away with. And it uh, definitely seems that Millie, along with starting to question her father – maybe starting to have these adult considerations and concerns, it seems a natural coinciding with that, that she is pushing these boundaries. She wasn't repentant about Candy Mountain. She just wanted to know what in God's name is going on up there. But Charlie doesn't really have time to explain because the lights start to flicker. Something has invaded Parnassus, and that something is a young woman named Vic on her Triumph bike. Were you surprised that Vic made it here with her shorter way? She, she is in the den of evil. 
Yeah, and I guess we really didn't know until she got there how special Parnassus is and exactly where it is. We're in an inscape. So Vic, I guess, I'm, I'm assuming that she just went to look for Manx and the bridge took her there. Wow, the whole place rumbled. It, it was interesting. So there are a couple things here. I, I feel like this is an improvement in her powers, though, because I feel like there were periods last year or last season, where Manx would go off the grid, off of the the world, the, the plane of existence that we know, and she wouldn't be able to sense him or find him. Her being able to reach Parnassus seemed like another hint at, another implicit or implied hint at her increased powers, that she could not only find him or know where he is, but actually reach this place. That's a really, really great point, too, because he... he... They immediately face off outside, which again, not expecting it all already in episode three. And then, but, oh, Manx and his energy this season, he just starts just ripping her apart in every way possible, just has her number, every little thing that she's probably, that we can see that she's probably been thinking about herself he brings out but also mentions this dark side and, and like you said that's that's sort of like he questions that right away like what is this darkness you have in you Vic McQueen what's allowed you to find this place and just goes off on her right not and only do I think that this is an indication of her powers have increased but yeah he says that he by explaining that the night road is a community inscape of dark souled strong creatives I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's essentially it. The fact that she's here indicates that there is some kind of darkness in her soul that's creeping. And you are 100% right. He is full on Regina George from Mean Girls in this scene, just pointing out every flaw that she already feels about herself and laying it bare, like little hot whips across her face. I don't know about you, but I give her a lot of credit. She dealt with it. She shook it off a lot better than I thought she would. Yeah, it made the hair on the back of my neck kind of stand up in that scene. And, and I, you, you know, you could kind of sense this the rage under her. And, and Ashley's acting is so great because it's just she's bubbling. And at the same time, you've got, like, the race charging up, like, revving and revving. And it's just a tension building. And he's tearing her down, like, word for word, inch by inch. And, you know, I think he's, like, almost trying to work her up. I, I think so, too. Like, yeah, exactly. To, to work her up so much much so that she either loses her nerve or, or loses her focus. But at the same time, he looks like he's having an absolute goddamn ball. I mean, yeah. he's like, he's <laughs> watching the watching the, her charge at the Wraith with the lit gas can. He died once because she set the Wraith on fire with gasoline. Tonight, though, he's like a, a man who has seen God and fears nothing any longer. He just looked like he was having an absolute ball. He knew the Wraith was going to come out of there unscathed. Yeah, and I think he kind of felt that confidence of being on his own turf, his home turf, or For you sure. know, For this sure. this inscape that he is he's familiar with, and he helped create, you know, collectively with all these hideous other strong creatives. Basically, he just laughs and smirks as as she's sort of defeated. I mean, her, her gas can does nothing; the whole thing's a failure. She knows it, and yeah. she she hightails it out of there. It's a little embarrassing at how poorly it goes. You know, I give her a lot of credit for making it here. I give her a lot of credit for for showing up. But she was not nearly equipped to take it to his home turf. Not nearly as well equipped as she thought she would be. 
And, you know, Maggie at the end tells her, you know, we'll do it together this time. And I hope that's, I hope those are words that Vic really hears and internalizes because I think her love and fear for Wayne is going to prevent her ultimately from being able to pull the trigger in the same way she was able to sacrifice Craig last year, which sounds horrible, but I don't think she'll be able to make the same sacrifice with Wayne that she was for herself, her safety, and for Craig last year. She's going to need a team. I, I think so, too. I definitely don't see where she would be in that same position again or, it, you know, let herself be in that same spot again. When she was having her troubled sleep at Linda's house, we got a couple of the two times that we saw her kind of sleeping or, or daydream sleeping. Uh, there were visions and flashes in her dreams, which she had last year, where she started kind of having visions of Charlie Manx before she had ever actually seen him. And tonight, one of the visions was a lightning filled sky almost like a crackling static electricity kind of lightning. And when she is in Parnassus or in the parking lot, and then when she's riding away and the camera's doing that up angle on the motorcycle, the lightning is just crackling over her. I think that was a vision of this moment, which was really interesting because she didn't really seem to spend any time thinking about what those visions meant when she had them earlier in the episode. But if you were watching, I think you got to see that vision kind of come true here. Yeah, I think I think each time she has visions, we're getting little glimpses of her sort of seeing something that's going to happen. So we're getting little little glimpses of the future almost. Right, and I think there was one with Wayne in uh, the, the first set uh, that she had in the episode. One was with Wayne, but I don't think it was Wayne from tonight. So I think that's something that we're going to have to put a pin in. But let's get back to the end of the episode and, and wrap it up. What did you think of Linda's uh, real talk? So she she gets a dressing down from Lou before going to see Manx, and then she kind of gets some like lessons in being a mother at the end of the episode from Linda. What was, what was your feeling on this this uh, table side chat? I really really liked it. Again, I'm really liking this this side of Linda where she's not talking down to Vic, but she's talking with Vic as as her daughter who now needs some advice on being a mother herself. You're my child, but we're more equals than we used to be. We have a big shared thing now, children. Very much so. And the whole a mother stays, you know, they figure the rest out. I mean, I'm getting chills just saying it again because it's it's such a well-written speech. And it also ties into what we see again, which is sort of a bookend to the beginning, Millie back at that strange sleigh house um, on Candy Mountain. And now it's sort of made me wonder, okay, a mother stays. Is that what's going on? Is Millie's mom staying because she's not leaving Millie? I picked that quote to read at the top of the episode because at the end of the day, I think this episode was about that theme, about exactly what Linda says. You know, that's what love is. You stay. A mother stays. You just figure out the rest later. But your first job is to just be there. And I think you're making a great parallel. But, well, really between Linda going back to her childhood, you know, we gave Linda a lot of shit last year. At least I did in my written recaps of the show. I used to give Linda a lot of shit about being a bad mother. But you know, at the same time, she was also there. Um, she was there in a lot of ways that Chris wasn't. She stayed. Vic has not stayed. But it looks like maybe Ghoul Cassie is staying. At the end of that episode, why do you think Millie cut off that deer's head? I'm still wondering about that, too. I might need another week to think about that. I couldn't decide if, if it was some weird prank or if it was just this weird way of her thinking of leaving a gift, almost like Like an offering? Cat. Oh, yeah, like an offering. Mm -hmm. And then... 
for some reason, the mother almost seemed like she recognized it and knew it was Millie. And and again, it just she sensed that. her though. Yeah, and and it was I like, mean, out in the yard. Very, I mean, yeah. It was a very um, sort of a sad thing when you think about it. If you think about the whole idea of a mother stays and what her child did to her, and she's still there. Oh, oh, yeah. gets me in the gut. It gets me in the gut. But and you talked about uh, you talked about goose uh, goose flesh and hair, you know, hair staying up in your arm when she rings and runs and then runs kind of off into the yard, but kind of conceals herself, but not really. And like the, I mean, Ghoul Cassie is almost like a, a ghostly apparition on the porch there. It's quite a distance, but you still hear her. Even on the wind, you hear her say, Millie. Ooh. Oh, the chills. The chills. Uh, I mean, holy shit. What a way to leave an episode. I can't even begin to unpack what is going to happen and how this changes Millie's life. I mean, we're already watching her change because of her having to maybe grow up even in Christmas land, still grow up, even though that should be impossible in Christmas land. But now this whole other world has been open for her where her mother maybe is still here. Maybe her mother is accessible to her. That's a game changer for Millie. And I think for Charlie Manx and probably a big reason why he does not want her up there and is going to have a problem once he finds out that she has been. And even that, though, that still wasn't the end of the episode. We thought that was the end. Ugh. No, no, not at all. And and so, I, I mean, I don't think there is really a lot here when they show up, when she shows up at Maggie and Tabitha's house. Other than Tabitha, I was impressed that she didn't spit in her face and that she had helped. And I was happy to see, you know, Ashley Romans again, because we haven't seen, we haven't seen any of these people really other than yeah. Bing and, and, uh, and Charlie in, in a couple of weeks. But uh, I was surprised, but also happy that Wayne and Lou both gave her a really frosty reception, which she was not expecting. And she needed it. She really needs to see how much she hurt them and affected them. And now she says, for now, she'll stay. But how do you feel about that? Do you think she will? Man, my bullshit radar went flying off the needle when he pointed, asked her, "Are you, is this a visit or are you here to stay? And she says, she says pretty without much hesitation, she says, I'm here to stay. And I wrote, here for a visit or here to stay. And then I wrote, stay in quotation marks, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, because I don't believe that for a hot fucking second. No, I don't. I don't think so. What do you think? You think she's, you think she's going to stay and join the team to fight Manx? I think they might try that to some degree. I mean, I don't think this would be Nosferatu if Vic McQueen didn't try and kind of go off on her own at some point and go out in that blaze of glory. But I think she might try to do it their way. I guess we'll have to see. I'm not really sure yet. I think one of the big question marks that we have to be keeping on our radar is that Wayne is still walking around with that candy cane in his pocket. And that candy cane is a beacon to Charlie Manx, it is a is a tether to Charlie Manx. It is dangerous, and and he is hiding it. That is troubling. That. It's troubling that he's hiding it above all else. That that candy cane's going to spell big trouble. And I love it too. I love it just as much that he's hiding it. Again, we need that in this show. We need to have these kind of crazy tension laced uh, details that will carry us until the next episode. So the very last scene, this almost felt like an after credit scene, but it comes before the credits. We meet the hourglass. We get the call from Abe, who we'd only hear on the other side of the phone. What were your impressions here of the hourglass before, before I tell you mine? Well, immediately we see that his ears bleeding. So if he's a strong creative, I'm immediately going to think that's his cost. Something has to do with his ear when he uses his powers. How about you? 
I noted the bleeding ear. I did not think of the cost, but that's probably right. Because he didn't really seem freaked out by it. It just seemed something he was used to. I was impressed at how dapper he looked. He was a very well put together. I mean, it was a very nice suit. Very well groomed. This is a guy who has power. This is a guy who gets things done. In a nice room. Yeah. A hoity-toity looking kind of place. Maybe a hotel. Maybe an apartment. Couldn't even really you know get that idea there was no sort of uh looks like you know anything that that somebody would have anything personal in the room he's al pacino in the devil's advocate through most of the devil's advocate just really rich really really well off but extremely powerful knows how to use his power beyond that i didn't really i i I mean you can't really figure out much i thought it was interesting that when he hears charlie manx's name his entire demeanor changes he all of a sudden he's willing to take a client from Abe because he wants to meet Charlie Banks. And also, he doesn't know who Vic McQueen is, which it seems to me, if you know who Charlie Banks is at this point in this world, in this community, you've not heard of Vic McQueen? Uh, Yeah, maybe the hourglass is like that high up that she's an unknown to him at this point. Manx has been around for however many years, 100 years, or however many with the strong creative community. Yeah, and I always got the sense in his voice that he wants to meet Manx because he wants to hurt him or something. Like, it didn't oh, seem like you, he oh, wanted to meet him. Oh, Yeah, it, it, did, it didn't seem like he wanted to be friends or meet him out of respect, but because he's got another ulterior motive under there as well. And it might not be good for Max. Interesting, interesting. I mean, that's a very possible take. You have uh, have to imagine. I mean, Abe does not. I mean, Abe says constantly that he does not like Max. I mean, obviously they are friends in the way old friends are. So I always took it more in like a in like a grumpy old men kind of way that he like you know talks shit. But you can see very easily where Max has stabbed everyone in the back at some point, used them, betrayed them, spit them out. It would be great to turn. Maybe we'll learn that the hourglass was like a, a like a competitive suitor for like Jolene back in like the 50s that would be awesome but uh, that's a great take I-, I definitely took it as a oh charlie manx like that's some like next level shit yeah i'll meet with him but i like your take too what another episode oh i mean the whole season's gone great but last week being one of my favorite of the series tonight really just keeping that pedal all the way down to the floor i can't even imagine what next week's gonna look like yeah and this is a great time for people to really get into the show too because this season is so exciting they need to just catch up with season one and jump on here so that they can be watching it week to week with us because it's been a real blast and i don't think it's gonna slow down from everything i'm hearing i don't think so i think it's only gonna get crazier faster and more wild and more i can't believe that just happened kind of moments so definitely join us next week on strong creatives welcome the nosferatu podcast we're going to be talking about the lake house episode four of season two also directed by craig mcneil coming back for his second of his uh, two episode block but before we go please stay tuned for our fantastic interview with charles p wilson iii the illustrator and artist for wraith joe hill's graphic novel prequel uh, story to nosferatu It's a great interview, and it's coming up right after this quick break. Hey, Anna, I got to tell you, I'm very excited about our guest tonight on Strong Creatives. Welcome. Some of you know his name. Some of you don't. 
But it's time you did. Mr. CP, Charles Paul Wilson III, is the illustrator for Race, which was written by Joe Hill and published by IDW Publishing. Charles P. Wilson III is the illustrator and co-creator of the New York Times best-selling graphic novel, The Stuff of Legend, published by Third World Studios. His drawings can be also found in the pages and on the covers of X-Files, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Tales from the Dark Side, and so many more titles. If you've not read Race, the graphic novel series, it kind of serves like a prequel to Nosferatu, the novel. And CP, through his art, is basically the man responsible for the original look of Christmas Land. Guys, I'm so happy to welcome my friend to the show. Hey, Charles. Thanks so much for sitting down with us for a few questions. Thank you for having me. Every interview I've basically given in the last four months begins with, how is life in the time of the Rona treating you? How are you handling quarantine and lockdown and hope everyone's uh, safe and healthy? I may be a little bit better suited than other people because of how much time I, I already spend here working. But I guess the uh, other half of that or the downside is that everybody else is always home all of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a little tougher to focus on, on work sometimes, but I do get to see my kids all the time, which is really cool. Speaking of, are you keeping those guys entertained? I, I think I might maybe want to mention a board game that was invented or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble um, getting it printed up at the moment. But my six-year-old, Juniper, she is in love with LOL dolls. I designed a board game so that she can move her little dolls around the board game and pick up little accessories and put them on her dolls until she gets to uh, the end. And it's it's a very basic game, you know, like she can draw cards and move around the board. And then there's there's maybe like a dance off and some other things. And I thought we would have a lot of fun coming up with card descriptions. You know, this is really ridiculous sounding oh. stuff that I know will make her laugh. But yeah, yeah. So that was something that we did. We've played a whole bunch of board games too, but I noticed that some of them, she loses interest really quick if uh, if the rules are too complicated. So I, I factored that in when I was putting this board game together. I do like to uh, create board games. And one of them, I remember back when I was working on Wraith, I would always come up with different kinds of board game ideas uh, for Christmas land. And a lot of them really cool. I thought, you know, like I wanted to make these, um, really cool punch out cardboard things that you stand up so that you would have the giant wall of ice. I, I forget its name, but it's right behind the, uh, Ferris wheel, which I'm also forgetting the Arctic eye. And then, um, and you could punch all these things out and set them up and then you would move around. But the more ornate it got, I, I, I don't know, but it was all centered around playing as these murderous little kids and um <laughs> and, I, and just the absurdity of uh this is this is what you're doing you know like there are these survivors that you know like survivors these people that get into uh somehow they make it into christmas land and i thought oh, i'd be kind of cool if joe wrote bios for everybody and then maybe a, a background story or something to get things going and then uh and then a little like and i don't know however however that would have worked out and then you're either chasing them or you're being chased by the kids, I mean, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It, it just seemed like a lot of fun. So I eventually I did draw up a board game layout later on. If you want, I could I could share it and, and you can and you could put it on the, uh, the Facebook group. Yeah, Facebook that'd be great. Group. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. But yeah, it was just a sketch layout. That was a lot of fun to design. It was just for fun. But it's like I, I have all this familiarity with Christmas Land, or a bit anyway. This just as far as, as we went with it. And so I had a lot of 
cool little ideas to to do with things. The licensing for Nosferatu and for Wraith and for Christmas Land is kind of endless. I mean, you can do a guess who, you know, that game where you're like, you basically have to identify like features and like you flip down the little tiles. You could do that with all the characters. Oh yeah. 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 You really could do cool. a Christmas Land instead of Candy Land, you know, mm-hmm. Scissors for the Drifter. That's a game screen oh to be made. <laughs> <laughs> little pair of scissors, safety scissors, you know, in every box, man. That's oh yeah, yeah. That was uh, it was a little bit more basic. The idea that I had for that, but I think that's the home stretch. Is that you have to the final few blocks or squares that you have to move across uh, towards the end to get to the escape part of Christmas Land um, is scissors for the drifter. And I think nice. that you either have to draw a card or roll a certain number, and you either get hit. Or, oh, I don't know, but I know that there was also, I tried to factor in some kind of med kit situation that you could use throughout, because <laughs> you would need it, you know, like you're moving sure. around, all these bad things are happening, and that bad things happen to the kids too, you know, yeah. they're, and they, they, they have that in the show, you know, like they're pretty free with hurting each other in the show, and, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was like that in the, uh, I think in our book too. I, I think you're just one or two ideas away. You already have the dice. So I think you're only like one or one and a half ideas away from like a great Dungeons and Dragons companion series, you know, like a, like <laughs> yeah. a whole booklet for uh, uh, Christmas land themed Dungeons and Dragons quests. I love that. Shut up and take my money, basically, at this yeah, point. Yeah, basically. You know, I, uh, <laughs> my, my, as one of the fun things I get to do being a blogger and a podcaster is I go to PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia every year, which is basically PAX being a game show. They're really known for their video games. You know, they do in the South, the East, the West, and the, uh, I don't think they do a North one. But anyway, their Unplugged one is just tabletop games, no video games. It's just an entire con devoted to tabletop games, the latest and greatest. It's reignited my love of like board games and tabletop games and and all those kinds of adventure quest games. But my son who's 12, who also doesn't like directions and loses interest easily, has really kind of had this reignited love for board games that he didn't really have when he was younger, but he has now. I appreciate your board game love. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, um, I went to, maybe it was last year, I think. I went to PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia. We were there to promote our um, our board game for Stuff of Legend, which we're going to be kickstarting soon. How we did I miss that? We were supposed to have it kickstarted before then, but we have everything done. And every now and then, there there are little things that we work on still. I know that our publisher at Third World Studios, Mike DeVito, he wants to get everything just right, but I don't really know know why the the delay exactly. And so it's it's not out yet, but it will be soon. I think we just finished up the very last things that they've been concerned with the whole time. But it's got miniatures, it's got standees, it. it's got a, a, a big map, you know, well. The the game board is actually just a map of this place called The Dark that's in our comic book, The Stuff of Legend, that the board game is based off of. That is fantastic. It's it's a really cool-looking thing that they've made. I'm really excited about it. I don't know how I missed that. I was definitely at that PAX. I don't know how I missed it, but you should definitely email me offline when we get done with this, and uh, I will cover the hell out of that Kickstarter for you guys. For oh, sure. awesome. Yeah, yeah please. No, yeah, that sure. would be great. Sure. I love I love helping getting games like off the ground, anything I can do. Uh, but, but we're not here to talk about board games, guys. We're here to talk <laughs> about comics. We're here to talk about your career. As I mentioned in your bio, you've drawn comics for a lot of different properties at almost all of the major comic book companies, Marvel, DC, you know, 
among the many. But is it fair to say that these days you basically just work with IDW or at least mainly with IDW? Well, it's been a little bit of a bit, but yeah, mostly IDW occasionally. Let's see. Um, I've been doing work on occasion for Boom, and it's been a while. I've only done tiny things for Marvel and DC. It's been primarily IDW. I occasionally, I did some cover work for Comics Tribe for their series, The Red Ten. That was something that I um, I had started early on when I we started publishing Stuff of Legend, and that continued on for a few years. And then um, I did a lot of, it, it's weird, I did a lot of uncredited work for PS Magazine, not PlayStation, but it's for the Army that was started by Will Eisner. It's an Army oh, wow. maintenance magazine. I had gone to the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art, and they have a studio, or they did, in the basement at the time. A lot of really neat people working down there. And I got to work down there while I was a student, and a little bit after I graduated. We would draw weapons and vehicles and backgrounds and stuff, and Joe would draw the people. It was a really cool experience, but I needed that sort of thing. I mean, I don't draw vehicles perfect or anything, but I cut my teeth on vehicles down there, and then uh, it wasn't as difficult to draw the Wraith when it came to time to get that job. I was like, oh, I've drawn a lot of cars. Not, you know, accurate, but I've, I have drawn them. That sort of helped a lot with Wraith. I, I can't draw like a stick figure to save my life. So it, it always blows me away when I hear someone as talented as you talk about having trouble drawing something like vehicles. Are there things that you find yourself having to practice more than others to, to perfect, whether it's a face or body parts or, or vehicles uh, versus things that may become really easy to you? One of the, the hardest things about figuring out what you're going to draw or how, it's how you're going to draw it or how you're going to interpret it and communicate it to who's going to see it. How are you going to draw, how are you going to draw tires? For example, you want to draw every single tread, same thing with the bottom of a boot. Like, do you draw every single tread on there or do you find a shorthand for it when you're rendering it? You know, like, are you rendering it in a way that it looks like it's in motion, even when it's supposed to be sitting still. This was this was an issue that I, I had early on when I was rendering wheels. I wanted to render them a certain way in Wraith. I would render them the same way when the car is moving, so that they def it's definitely moving. But then I had to figure out how I could do the same thing during static scenes where, you know, like the car wasn't going anywhere. But yes, a lot of it is, is texture, you know, or... Um, uh, style. I know that when I was in school, we would have instructors every now and then. They would say, don't worry about style, just focus on the basic drawing. And I still had a, and I, in a lot of ways, I still have a long way to go, but it was pretty easy to say, okay, I won't bother with stylistic stuff right now. I'll just fo focus on the basic drawing of things, you know, like it will look like a hand the way hands look. You know, I won't bend them in certain ways or draw certain cartoony aspects of them, you know, like or caricatures of them or anything. And But the, the thing that was tough about that was I didn't know when to jump from somewhat realistic comic book house style to something a little bit more exaggerated. And I had gotten a, um, a cover from Marvel Comics around the time the first Avengers movie came out. They were hiring artists to draw in the style of other artists that lived a long time ago. And I had gotten E.H. Shepard to emulate. And he drew the illustrations for Wind in the Willows but he's, he's, and other stuff too, but he's mostly known for Winnie the Pooh. 
So the cover that I had to draw was in the style of E.H. Shepard, and I had to find something that he was, was easily recognized. And I, for some reason, I was like, I shouldn't try to draw Winnie the Pooh. And I don't know why I thought that, because as soon as I had decided, you know what, I need to draw something based on Winnie the Pooh, it was easily the most communicable. People got it. As I, I picked a scene from a Winnie the Pooh book. I drew the Hulk stuck in the wall, and... The other characters were looking up at him, trying to figure out how to get him out. And then everybody got it, you know. But I also started getting a lot of commission work in that style after that. That style started evolving. And then I took what I I had been drawing in a house style, like regular comic book style, and I started blending the two together. And then Joe came along and was like, hey, can you draw the way you normally draw like in stuff of legend and but then like pencil and ink it like you do for these little eh shepherd drawings and do that for wraith and was, and so that's that's what we did we did that and then i wound up practicing it a little bit in volume 4 of stuff of legend before i got over to wraith but it was originally wraith that got me started in that direction and then i have been refining it since then a direction that was like a, a very clear way to go where a lot of us we just sit and we're a little bit confused about what we do next so we just keep doing the same thing and then experimenting on the side it's like you found like your voice or like a way that you were communicating not just the technical drawing but the emotion and i think that's when you said people get it i think that's what i at least pick up from your work and that is there's an emotion the line work itself has so much going on to it that you pick up on a lot more than just what's being depicted in the technical you know sense of the word when you're drawing something and i think that that really seemed i guess maybe it sounds like it flowed for you it just kind of brought brought it out Yes. Yeah. And the busier I got with it, the more creative I got, the more ideas I I would have. That was also uh, something that was kind of pleasant in Joe's scripts. You know, like he was also extremely creative, too. That was a really cool experience working on that book. And it helped me discover uh, a lot of what I wanted from my drawing. Getting into this industry in the first place, was it sort of always a dream, something that you really wanted to work towards, you know, from an early time on? When I was 13, I saw an ad for the Kubert School in a comic book. You know, by then, it had already been impressed upon me that, like acting and, and other creative pursuits, people who go into that are a dime a dozen, and it's very rare if anybody ever comes out successful or even gets gets a shot at it, you know, or they actually do it in any any form yeah it it draws a lot of people definitely. yeah so it, i i just pushed it off to the side as a hobby did you grow up reading comic books was it were comic books a part of your life before even the art came into into drawing and came in, into it yes superheroes i read a lot of superheroes my first comic book was um it was superman 23 i think it was dan jurgens and mike mignola but anyway it's i i've bought that book uh, like four or five times, whenever I see it, I'll pick it up. I don't have my original copy anymore. It used to have a thumbtack right in the center because, you know, after everybody had went to bed, I would hang them up on my wall. I, I had the top bunk. Uh, we weren't allowed to put things on the wall, but I just figured nobody would notice like little pinholes. Someone did eventually <laughs> later. But anyway, after everybody went to bed, I would hang my comic books up and then I would kind of lie down, lie down and look at them and then fall asleep and then you know like and i would always carry them everywhere they were the most beat up comics and i would bring them in my binders to school or i would just i'd read them downstairs and 
they were my favorites, you know, my, like I, I loved toys, but I also, I loved these things so much because I, I was thinking about them all of the time and um, I would reread the same books until I could get a new one, you know, and that would sometimes be like a month later or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved comics a, a great deal. I think that I read them religiously. Now I didn't, I didn't follow any particular title. Maybe the closest was detective comics and any Batman. Cause I would sure. just buy any Batman that was that would hit the shelf because but and that was the most popular but i would get these things from convenience i didn't have a comic shop yet a comic shop that i would frequent so i would jump from title to title and sometimes i would come across a title that would be part 2 of a two part story i would go into it with the understanding that things had happened before and so it wasn't difficult to read that second because it's all I was going to have, you know, and a lot of times it would be the cover would be the, it would be so neat that I, I was just like, well, I have to have that. I don't care if it's, the, I want to know what, what happens in there. You know, if Captain America is being crushed by stalactites, I, I got to know what happens, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think what also yeah. prepared me for that was comics were these self-contained stories per issue. You didn't have to, get their origin or anything they would just you spider-man would swing in and he would be talking about something and maybe he'd refer to something and you understood that he had a life prior to what was going on before that day he was swinging around the city and then i noticed that my reading habits changed later when they started working uh they started doing more serialized formatted comics they would do six issue, then 12 issue, like lock and key. For example, I couldn't dive into volume two. I, I would want to read the beginning, you know, you even to, though yeah. I, under, I understood that there were things that happened beforehand. That was just something that I, I would want to know for that particular kind of story. I think one of the reasons that fans of Joe's Nosferatu took to Wraith, even though, you know, it's a graphic novel, which is a very different kind of reading experience from, from a novel. I think so many people consumed it because just what you're saying, they, they, want the backstory they want the whole story as, as much as possible i think i think what you're saying i think that feeling is felt by a lot of people who are into a fandom whatever your fandom may be the the idea of you you want to consume all of it and start from the beginning yes yeah exactly i know everyone is here and, and they all want to hear about wraith but I have to ask you about Stuff of Legend. How did that come to be? I mean, this, this is a long-running title for you. Maybe your longest-running title? Can you tell us about how you came to draw it, how you came to create it? And for people who don't know what, what it's about. Oh, sure, yeah. I was not having a lot of, of luck submitting samples to different editors you know like sometimes i would try to focus on one but i'd get a, a hit with somebody else and i'm like oh i want to submit something to them my wife who was my girlfriend at the time she saw that there was something for comic book idol and american idol was really big at the time and she really liked watching that and she's like well there's this thing called comic book idol you should do that i didn't know what to make of it it looked kind of interesting and i participated in it and i came in second but the main thing that you wanted was to make these contacts at the end of it. It was really important. It wound up being a giant mess. One of the publishers wasn't honoring some of the work that they were going to give to someone else or that the person that wanted, I mean. And then, um, but other, other people, they were all getting picked up for different things. And I was a little nervous about that. But I had a friend in school who his brother had his own publishing company. And he had been working with Mike Rach and Brian Smith trying to find an artist that would work with them for their stuff of legend idea. I did some sketches. I was this close to uh, joining the Indianapolis State Troopers. I, I was all set what? to go back to Indiana. I had orientation 
But they sent this really cool idea. I had been thinking superheroes, 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 job, job, job. And I, I got to find a way to make a paycheck at this or something. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'll I'll just I'll stay a little bit longer. I'll, I'll do this uh, nine to five job. And then in all of my spare time, I'll work on the book. And so then I did that, you know, like um, once once we had settled on doing, you know, like they were like, yeah, Charles can work, can work with us. And so then we all went in together. And we all own a piece of it, so it's all it's our thing. We worked on it nonstop. It was it was a lot of work. We chose to work on it in a in a tonal pencil style, which I always hear, and it's true. You'll never do monthly comics if that's your goal. You'll never do monthly comics, and and I I tried really hard to to meet that, but I I just yeah, it is a lot of work, especially if you have a lot of other things going on. And so anyway, that was it was our own self-published book, uh, well, published through Third World Studios. They did a lot of work to get it out there. So any work I got after that was thanks to their legwork. uh, We've been on a bit of a hiatus. We haven't been putting it out monthly since 2009 when it first came out. But um, we are working on our final volume of books. There are going to be six volumes altogether. But the story itself, it's about a boy... In the 40s, he is kidnapped by the boogeyman and pulled through the closet into this other world called the dark. And then his favorite toys get together. They form a group and they go into the closet into this other world to go rescue him. And when they get into this other world, they find that it's populated with a lot of lost and forgotten toys that used to live in that house that they were in. But even bigger than that was that when they came into this other world, they all became realistic versions of themselves. So the teddy bear is a giant grizzly bear. The toy soldier is a real soldier. Jack in the box is an acrobatic jester and the piggy bank is a pig and so on. It's about their adventures trying to rescue that boy and get him back. But early on, we didn't decide to do all ages. So it gets really dark in a lot of spots. Um, it's pretty, it's sometimes we, I try to, cover the more graphic stuff as best I can, but it is graphic, you know, not as graphic as Wraith, but, uh, you know, like you don't see pools of blood or anything like that. Anybody's brains hanging out of their head or anything like that. Kids who are able to watch Empire Strikes Back, this is, I'm pulling this from Mike Rach, I think. If your kid can watch Empire Strikes Back, then he can, he can read this book. For, I think, a large segment of people who are probably listening to this, that is a an identifiable watermark, I think, for them to, to pull from. <laughs> yeah. uh, know your audience for sure. Oh, and definitely for people who aren't as familiar, Wraith is a follow-up to Nosferatu, and it was originally a seven-issue seven run that is just absolutely gorgeously and intricately illustrated by Mr. Wilson. And written by Joe Hill. And now it's available as a complete graphic novel under the same title through IDW. My question is obviously, what is it like illustrating the mind of Joe Hill and his sort of wicked, fantastical world of Charlie Manx? I think I had a bit of a fan moment early on because I had been reading Lock and Key. A friend of mine up in Massachusetts had put it in my hands he wouldn't let me leave this comic book store until I borrowed this book from him. And I was just like, how am I going to borrow a book from a guy in Massachusetts when I lived down in New Jersey? I was up there for a signing for Stuff of Legend. But he was very insistent that I read this book. And it was the first volume of Lock and Key. I can't remember if the second volume had started coming out yet or what. But I read it and I absolutely loved it. And 
mailed it back to the guy and, and that wasn't an issue like I thought it would be. It, I just, I just mailed it back to him. Uh, I just kept thinking about the book. So I went and I bought any of it as soon as I could, I could get to a store or had money first, whichever came first. I don't know. I'm sure I had to have money first and then go to the store. I got volume two in my hands and I reread that over and over and over again until I could get volume three. And now I, I would do, I would buy the single issues until the trade came out and then i'd buy that as an excuse to reread it again but also when it came out digitally i would just as an excuse to read it in a different format i just did this over and over again until the last issue i think yeah i absolutely loved reading lock and key uh yeah one of my friends would always keep badgering us like ah who what writer do you want to work with when the only one that i could really think of was the one i was reading i read heart shape box while i was waiting for new lock and key to come out and then uh horns i was like well joe hill i'd like to work with joe hill on something nice it was neat how it turned out i saw that gabriel rodriguez had drawn that's the cover image you see on most wraith books you know like the first it's on issue one, and then it's the cover of the soft cover and hard cover. That's the image that I saw a, a year or so before I had even been asked to work on it. So, uh, And I believe that I saw that Gabe was set to work on the book before me. I think that's what I, I saw. I don't think I was originally intended to be the, the person on Wraith, but it worked out that way. We're so glad it did. Me too. It was really, really neat experience. The content was, uh, I don't know, like after reading Lock and Key, you know, like I just felt like this stuff was stuff that I'm interested in reading. Like one of the things they would tell us in art school was just like, all right, well, if you guys are fortunate enough to go out there and get, you know, work in the comic book industry, chances are you're not going to work on the stuff that you really want to work on. You know, you're going to be asked to work on stuff you would never even you know and you're you're gonna find ways to enjoy that and put yourself into it and and that's great and everything but um it's it's not likely that you're gonna if you if you're if you want to be a superman artist eh, i don't know if you're gonna find yourself on superman and and i'm i think of this every now and then jamal eigel he has drawn every i think i'm remembering this right every kind of superman or supergirl book or anything except for superman itself Superman is the the main reason he got into comics, but I remember overhearing that, and I think it's still true. I think he hasn't got his hands on an on a Superman book yet, and I thought, you know what, that's that is the real truth to it. <laughs> I I don't know if it's true for everybody, but uh, going all the way back to Wraith, Wraith is something that I I would have really wanted to work on, and as it happens, I got to work on it, and that was that was pretty neat. It sounds like a really great match. Perfect. Speaking of it just being a, a good match and one complimenting the other, we actually have a great fan question from the Facebook group. Charlie Banks' backstory is taken directly from your comic Wraith. Do you think there was a breaking point that made Banks such a twisted person, or was there always a monster bubbling under the surface? The book itself, it touches up on his childhood a bit. I think that he was set to just be a regular child. His first knife was a sled. And it's just something that kids riding sleds in the snow, that's that's just a really good example. You know, he just goes and he does kid stuff, but it's the evil of the outside world that comes in and then kind of hurts him so much that he breaks when he's a kid. So his introduction to, uh, and I, I think I was listening, I think you covered this on the, the last podcast. Oh, bless your heart. Even if you don't really listen, I appreciate you for saying that. <laughs> the way Charlie Max views women, you know, like it's all of his 
personalities, you know, everything that comes out on the show, it's what he was exposed to when he was a child. These are, these are concepts. And I worry about this stuff with my own kids, like what I'm going to say in front of them that might have a impact on them as an adult. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. These are things that were introduced to him when he was a child, you know, like these horrible things that were done to him or uh, things that he's seen. That is the way that he has seen the world work. And so that's what he carries with him. And so that's what we see when he interacts with his wife, you know, and kid in the episode, you know, like when he interacts with Millie, he's got, he's got a lot of love and, and you know, like, like he would for the kid of himself, but his wife becomes, I guess, uh, the way he, you know, like the way what he's, he saw his mother when, when he was a kid, you know, like she was a prostitute. That was what he sees. Uh, you know, I guess I'm not really explaining this too well, but Oh, no. Anyone who has a kid, I think, knows exactly what you're saying, for sure. The gist of it is that I don't think he was destined to become evil, or he always had evil. The world informed him of uh, his role in it, and he went with it. A, a nurture-over-nature kind of position. He was mm-hmm. he was made, not born, to be the monster he was. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I noticed when I was working on the book, a lot of the expressions are a little bit more toward the absurd or not ridiculous, but um, I read Wraith a few times and I think my initial read was a very straightforward, serious take, except that when it came to Charlie, it would always be a little bit maybe over the top yes, and cartoonish and stuff. And I think that that was the direction that we took Wraith, but it was not the tone of the book, you know, because when I, when we were done and I went back to read Wraith again, I was like, this reads a little bit more. It's, it's not as cartoonish as, you know, like, I mean, these are look like, I guess, literal cartoons is what I'm drawing in the comic, but the content is usually, oh, I don't know. I think that, um, oh, it's pretty depraved. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the direction I went with my drawings kind of took it in a little bit more of a cartoonish direction. And I think it still works totally great. That's, that's what I had to offer for my part. But I noticed that, you know, it did read different in tone. Nosferatu did when I read it afterwards and the same for the show, you know, it's a little bit more straightforward, but Charlie has that little bit of a caricature in there and can't wait to see what he, he says next kind of thing. And I noticed that Joe and and I think when he was talking to Jamie or something they he mentioned that maybe I'm I'm thinking of a tweet interaction or something but Charlie comes from an old world so or you know like he he thinks of old world things to say and so they seem a little bit outlandish to us you know they would these days maybe or at least this is the way I took it but he's just speaking from a different time and I think that also gave me a different impression until I had heard him say that about it i guess does that make sense oh completely completely Mm -hmm. especially when you're paired with someone and drawing and and maybe not necessarily the driving creative behind it do you find yourself getting so into the story of what you're working on and and there and then the drawing of what you're working on that you ever like pitch ideas and or try to influence the story like like I, not that this happened, but would you ever, if you saw uh, like a panel coming up that Joe was, was writing, say to him, you know, I don't think this really works this way. Can we try it this way? Not only from an artistic standpoint, just because you have your own ideas about story and, and you, you want to see how that goes. 
that's something that I used to think about a lot. When I first started on Stuff of Legend, those are all the thoughts that I would have. I would second guess all of the writer's intent. Like almost every single panel, I don't know what, what was wrong with me at the time. Eventually, I would just go with what, what they had written. Something in me wanted to make something out of nothing. I had to find my own creative space and make up my own stories and all my own little dialogue pockets and anything where, you know, like I have an idea for character interaction or anything like that. I had to note it in the side. And then I noticed that as I did that more and more and more, my ideas began to grow. By the time I got to work with Joe and uh, everybody else on that book, I had already found a place to put those things away so that I could focus on what they were. Now that, that didn't mean that um, I couldn't be creative with this though, because that's, that's all I really wanted to do. You know, like if I wasn't feeling creative, I know there were like three main things that I was feeling while I was working on this book. If it wasn't creative, then a lot of it was panic that I wasn't getting enough done in time because I, I, I would get burnt out relatively quickly. And then there would be periods where I'd stay up days at a time. And this wasn't, unusual. I know there's, yeah. I had been working with friends who were doing the same thing. They were getting their first jobs, uh, their first paying work. And my friend Nick was staying up a lot longer than me, but he would set these milestones, I guess, you know, like if he could do two, almost three days, I could do, you know, and it was just, but you were just useless after the first day. Yeah. You were jelly by the end of that day. Diminishing returns. You, you yeah. were nodding off and doing everything through the second day. And it, it, I, I wasn't, you had to condition yourself to do this. And I remember um, part of it that helped was I had been working overnights and I couldn't always sleep during the day. So I had been gradually working myself up to this, but it was mostly, it was sheer panic that would keep me awake to work on this. And so a lot of times if I'm flipping through the book, I see panels that I worked on that I, I should have redrawn, I think, you know, that I was that I was just basically jelly while I was working on this. But other ones I could I remember I was like, oh, I was really creative during this thing. And you know, and and you would see it in the work, you know, like you'd see it in the composition. You're like, this is a lot a lot more put together and a lot more fun and the faces are, you know, they look a lot better. Yeah, by the time I got to Joe, you know, like I, I was just ready to be the professional about it. Um, I had been working at my own pace on Stuff of Legend, and then I was working with all of these people who were used to getting things done in a timely manner, and I was really trying to find a way to do that. And it was it was pretty nerve-wracking because I, I really wanted to impress these people. and I And I got a whole bunch of cool things to do with them afterwards but um to mention like some of the other people that worked on this with us i know that for issue one uh well first jay photos did all the coloring robbie robbins and sean lee did the lettering a lot of that stuff requires and and i and i know this now although i wouldn't have been able to tell you this when i very first when i first started trying to draw comics um all of that requires some aspect of creativity like you can't just throw it down wherever so, you know, like you get Jay's color theory and you get Sean and Robbie's sense of design. And so I got pretty lucky that I was working with people who already had a really good idea of what they were doing. Because a lot of us that were coming in to working in the industry, we were working with uh, people that were coming in with us. So it was like everybody was um, falling over and making mistakes on their way to finding the right way to do things for them, you know, like the sure. best way that they could do. That makes sense. Yeah, I was really nervous about messing up in that way when I when it came to working with Joe and Chris and Jay and everybody. 
Oh, God, I could imagine. Do you yeah. find yourself getting, like, starstruck? Obviously, there are artists of note. There are comic book writers of note. There are authors of note who come to write comic books. Does working with someone like Joe Hill, if you were a fan of his beforehand, present, like, an extra challenge to you? Because maybe there is a, a, a cultural, like, legacy fanboying going on inside that you have to kind of quell? Or, or, not, or not so much. He's just a guy here to, to work, and so am I. I didn't get starstruck like that or anything in the way that um, I wound up becoming a huge fan of the TV show Wings. I would just have it on all the time. First, I had these bootleg copies, then they released the DVDs, and then I would just have those on all the time. And then it's just I loved the show so much. You know, I'd have it in the background when I was working or just I'd fall asleep to it, anything. And then I did a um, – I went to a comic book convention I think in Pittsburgh or Novi. Pennsylvania. One of the actors was in the lobby. It was um, Farrah Forky or Farrah Fork, but I was told it was pronounced Fork. She played Alex in Wings. I froze, I guess. On the way in the elevator, they were like, hey, hey, get in the elevator. And I, I was just like, I, I think I just saw someone. And they're like, oh, very good. And it was so weird. And, you know, and so the next day I was just like, you know, I, I thought I saw somebody that I, I recognized from a TV show. And my friend Adam was with me and he likes to poke fun at me all the time. And so uh, we went to go meet her and oh, I, I could just hear him laughing the whole time in the background because my face just, just went the brightest red from, you know, like getting to meet her in person. And, uh, and yeah, I, I couldn't think of anything to say. It was just a weird – I have no real self-control or anything like that. <laughs> and then um, as as far as meeting like a lot of my heroes and stuff in comics, it's it's been extremely easy, really easy. Like people that uh, I, I grew up reading, you know, like and I, I'd recognize their names. And, you know, like and I'm meeting these people in real life these days and it's, it's it is really cool. But they don't turn me to jelly or anything, uh, not in the way that meeting went. You guys got to, to chat with Joe, and he's, he's like a, a cool, easygoing guy. Same with Gabriel Rodriguez. That was a big deal for me, too. I got to meet him. He's really super nice. Really seems like it. Yeah, definitely. The books that they made, I'd go through periods where I'd stop reading comics altogether, and then theirs pulled me back in. So it's definitely magnetic you know the the stuff that they have going on so i they're very special creators and so it was very very cool to meet them they made it easy maybe it was also really cool getting to work with them you know like have work paired with their work on books and stuff too i think it's a perfect marriage of talent all around honestly back to the fans really i have actually have another question for you and this one's kind of funny if you could take any mythological creature and base a graphic novel around it which creature would it be and why? <laughs> oh, hmm. Yeah. Um I feel that <laughs> this is one this is like a perfect question to make the most ridiculous answer for, but I normally sit on those for like twenty minutes or so. So I, <laughs> I um I let's see. I have this board game. This game is called Mythology. You can't find anything really on it. Because it's called mythology, you know, it's just, <laughs> so, you know, like, and, and if anybody talks about it, they don't, they're not going to, they don't sit down and they type the company name in or anything, or they, they might not even say board game or whatever. So it was really hard to search for. And I'm trying to find an easy way to uh, figure out how to play this thing, you know, with my kid. And so one of the things I wanted to find was like uh, a YouTube video with, you know, like a review or instructions or something like that. But uh, you know, like nobody, you'd really had to dig to fight, find anything. And there was no really 
no real good information as it turns out for, for that. But anyway, mythology had a minotaur in it and the minotaur at the center of this maze, the whole concept of this game that I have yet to play that I've looked at like a lot. And one day I will play it. I would say right now off the top of my head, because I can't really, you know, that or a hippogriff from Harry Potter is the other yes. thing I have in my head right now. Nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe a minotaur. Actually, a hippogriff would be more fun to draw now that I think maybe. I found Mythology the game. It does look pretty cool. You have to battle the, and slay the fearsome Minotaur. Go and then ultimately find your way out of the maze. Yeah, it's it's got cool little figures to play with, you know, or um, busts of characters, I guess. We had fun picking who we were going to play. We still haven't played it. We got really close to playing once. We got as far as... But I, I had to check the rules, and by the time I turned around... The kid was gone, and so that's what we happens. Didn't play it. Yeah, that I mean, you, sometimes you have to make the audible to just be like look at what you have and make up the rules based on what's presenting you and not what they actually <laughs> say. That's what I've learned. That was a really great question. So, obviously, you're a natural fit for creating the title artwork for the AMC version of this universe. Can you tell us a little bit how you kind of got on that gig? Someone from Stalwart Films. They uh, they do the visual effects for Nosferatu. Contacted me on Twitter and asked me to do it, and I thought, oh wow, cool, you know, like that's. I didn't think I'd have anything to do with the show. I do remember Joe had uh, me send some in some artwork and stuff, but I, I I always assume that you know, like I'm happy to send stuff in, but for anything really. But I never really hear anything on the other side of it. And then I got this really cool private message on Twitter, you know, from someone on the show, like. And he asked me if I wanted to do it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. I'd love to. It's one of the coolest things that I've ever got to do ever. I absolutely love love doing those. They're the Aww. little title sequence cards. Yep. I know that they have a lot of really talented artists that uh, they work with over there. So uh, it is really cool to be included. I can't hold a candle to a lot of this, this stuff that I, I've seen other people work on. At least I feel that way. So it's I, nah. it is really cool to, to get to do those. Oh, this was a cool thing, too. I got the assignment from someone in California, and I don't think anybody in Rhode Island knew that I would be doing those. But when they asked me to do samples, I was on my way to Rhode Island for a comic book convention. I think it was just Rhode Island Comic Con. I went there. I brought my computer and scanner and everything so that I could stay up and in the hotel room and, and work on these title cards. But there was a comic book convention, and people from the show decided to go there. And then someone saw that I had the graphic novel on my table, and so they came over to meet me. And so I got to meet some some of the production people and assistant directors, and I got to meet Jamie, and I got to meet the, uh, the the guy that does. Uh, Charlie's makeup and everything, or like the um, prosthetics and everything. Joel Harlow. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yeah. oh, awesome. Really cool. So I got to meet all those people from the show, and they were super nice, and it was all kind of a coincidence, and that was uh, all that happened all at once. It's all about being in the right place at the right time uh, sometimes. Uh, how, how many pieces did you end up making, uh, cards did you make, end up making in season one? I think there were 10 total, including the one for Ghost. For the second series, there might have been 10 also. I think I was set to do... I think there are, there might be a total of 10 for uh, the second season, too. So when you're doing these 
title cards from illustrations for a TV show, you know, how much or what kind of direction are you given? Are you just sort of told what the card is going to say and, and a general idea? Is, and, or is it left sort of up to you to find the appropriate sort of uh, image? They give me a brief description of what they have and if I need reference. My point of contact, his name is Kyle. He will get his hands on reference from the show and then he will send it over to me. It's it's real easy. I know that one or two of them early on were difficult because the only images that he could get at the time were a little blurry. And so I had to guess what things looked like. And then when I'd see it later, I was just like, oh, the texture on that thing ran a totally different way than what I thought happened. You know, that was with one specific I mean, like, it's just super easy. They'll just send me reference, like, hey, this is what this looks like. Could could you have it uh, look a little bit more like this? I'm trying not to give away stuff that hasn't aired yet, so... No spoilers. Yeah, no, no, no. We're just we're gonna we're gonna fuck with everyone and just put. Uh, we're, we're, it's we're put it's long... only as it's only as far as the uh, <laughs> the title cards go. But I don't know. They were a lot of fun to draw too. You know, like, and I think that a lot of it is is some of the best things that I've ever drawn ever, you know? I can feel um, that joy in them, honestly. I mean, and I, and I got the joy just immediately, especially second season, like immediately on the screen seeing your work again. I just, I squealed out loud because, you know, it, it's such a character now, those cards themselves even. When the triumph came on the screen, uh, on the screen, I, I could hear Anna from three states away squealing <laughs> with joy for you. So it was awesome. <laughs> you know, one of the weird things about that is that Gabriel Rodriguez, he did the original illustrations for the novel, Nosferatu. And he did an illustration of the Triumph that um, uh, it has a it has a specific name, the wrench. But um, it uh, he did that illustration, too. And I was just like, well, I can't draw it the same way. So, the you know, like all my layouts, they, they look like what he did. And I couldn't tell you if it was because... That's where the where my mind immediately went was like first seeing this thing, or that's the first place every artist will go, or or what. But uh, I spent a lot of time trying not to do the thing that he did, and then at the same time trying to make sure it looks like. I think I went with an angle that was just pretty much like the photo, and I think it was because I. I couldn't gauge the thickness right away, and I thought if I draw it from this angle, I am not betraying any of dimensionality of it. You know. I love that. You know, like if I if I switch it around to something else, you know, like a, a different perspective, and it came out pretty cool. I thought we we all thought it did. And we we love were it. all very very <laughs> happy with it. And speaking of the show, it's evident you're also a fan. We all want to know what is it like seeing these immensely detailed worlds that you help shape. They'll look for to come to life on the screen. And I'm talking specifically Christmas land, obviously. I remember when some of them showed me some pictures early on ish. They were very, very excited about it. Like the gates or sort of the overall view. The problem solving with the gates, for example, that was good. What they did. uh, I remember I had a very tough time trying to figure out how do you put the candy canes together in like an interesting way, but that also communicates it is exactly what it is. And I think that they had better people on that. I, I overthought my part in, you know, like when I, I was doing it, I think I had a really weird looking concept initially, but what they did was really great, you know, and I love all of the, uh, they have all the lights and everything. The thing is really well lit up. But they have a lot of really great artists that put their own stuff in there. I think that that was, I think I'm 
I would be way more excited about seeing that because I think mine has a lot of air. It doesn't feel full like what they put on the screen. At least that's that's my impression of it. I I wanted to cram more things in. Oh my god! I mean, every time I look at some of your more intricate illustrations of Christmas, I see something different every time. You're saying that you want to put more in there? Oh my god! I love. That. I <laughs> well, love I mean, that. you know, a, a lot of this is we're drawing on the same source, which is what Joe laid out. I remember early on, I asked him if if we could make a uh, an amusement park Mac. Because he had a basic map that he had already drawn out. I wanted to expand on it. And I was reading the novel. I would find descriptions here and there, like after Vic enters enters and buildings are exploding and stuff, I was getting locations based on what was happening when, you know? And I'm like, all right, this is a brick building. I don't even know what it is, though, but it exploded over on this side or something. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I, I And I'd ask Joe, and then I remember... I was trying to handwrite the letters in, and Joe is kind of a practical joker, and so I only had so much room to fit this. There was just one that I didn't have a name for, and there wasn't a whole lot of room to put it in there. So he gave it like this super long name that was just (laughs) – it obviously wouldn't fit. I wound up just doing computer lettering, finding a font on the computer you I thought that was hilarious. But yeah, he's he's a practical joker. I would think one time I was um, signing uh, plates for the Nosferatu Wraith collection. And every now and then you'd, you'd see, like, you'd go to sign in your space, but he already put his name there. So that, I don't know. That was kind of funny. <laughs> I love his humor. And it's the same humor that you, you, you read in the characters that he writes, too. It's pretty cool. kind of get the idea that it's just a big geek, too, and loves all this pop culture stuff. And, you know, that affection is, is obviously evident in the work. And how, you know, he interacts with fans and everybody else. Last week in, in episode two, season two, we had a moment literally out of the rate. So we have where Manx creates his inscape for the first time with Millie in the back seat. What was your reaction seeing that? How did you feel seeing that? I think I was I was busy watching it, just watching what was happening on the screen and not thinking about Rafe uh while I was watching it until it got to that moment where they both get out of the car and they're walking towards Christmas land. And then I thought they should probably hold each other's hands, you know, like I, and I was just like, you know what, that's what I did in the book. And then, you know, I didn't have like a very specific thought like that, but I recognized it instantly. And, you know, like it could be that it wasn't from the book or the comic or whatever, um, because it, I had drawn something that was based off of the script. And so part of me thinks that, yeah, that would be really cool if that was the case. But I recognized it as soon as it happened. And, you know, that's where my mind went right away. It was pretty iconic to me, too, and that's exactly where my mind went as well. And I think everybody probably who's familiar with Wraith, it's probably, probably, you know, a little nod to the fans who, who've read that. So many times already this season, I, I feel like I've had flashes of my mind from Wraith come into my head watching a scene play out on the screen. It, it's just so well rendered in the, in the, not in the graphic novel it's hard not to to see it in kind of like your mind's eye while you're watching it on the screen. I think that's a big credit to you as much as the words, uh, you know, for leaving those, for making those memories, those very lasting kind of images in our brain. I agree with that 100%. Second that. Uh, Charles, we have kept you here for a long time, but before we go, we ask everyone who comes on Strong Creatives Welcome one question in two parts. What 
would be your inscape and what would be your knife. Oh, wow. <laughs> we get that reaction from every person we ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm trying to think. What have I been attached to? It's not a pencil. <laughs> I don't want it to be a pencil. 20-sided die. Say a 20-sided die. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish. I, I've, I've never actually played with a 20-sided die, but uh, that is that would be a good one. Maybe it could be a Transformer. <laughs> That I've had. I was going to say I, a know, vintage like, toy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, vintage I love toy. that. I love that. <laughs> There's one named Hot Rod. My friend Dave gave me one uh, relatively recently that I've always wanted to have when I was a kid. And we go to these comic shows and they have uh, – they sell all the old toys, you know, like at different booths and stuff. And he found a very mint-looking one and got it for me. Ooh. And so uh, it's it's my absolute favorite one. Maybe go. maybe that. So nice. I used to see it in magazines all the time, and someone came close. They got me another version when he grows to become Rodimus Prime. But uh, and hopefully there's a Transformers fan listening to knows who I'm talking about. But I love it. Um, I, it was it was close enough, you know, like, but it wasn't quite Hot Rod. And then I guess not an Inscape so much as he would just be real. I think. Oh, okay, kind of like I Bumblebee. Like- <laughs> like in the Bumblebee movie, you'd find him in your garage, like, you know, hiding in the corner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, like, or he'd be a toy, and then I would, it wouldn't be something that would be, uh, the the change would be visual. It would be like corner of the eye, and then you look, and then now he's just real, sort, sort of a thing. That's fantastic. Very cool. For the record, I was always more of the fighter jets uh, Transformer fan. Like, the, the ones that turned into cars were, like, my second favorite, but I was just, like, a big Starscream fan. Oh yeah, Starscream was my very first one. I remember um, my grandma got him for me, and I was like, "What does this say?" And she says, "It says deception." And I was just like, "What does it mean?" She's <laughs> like, "It just means bad." And I was like, "Okay, he's bad. He's yeah. a bad guy." I didn't. There were red ones and purple ones, but I didn't associate purple with evil, so I didn't know what to make of this guy other than he was a, a robot that turned. You know, it was just really cool. I just have real clear memories of like uh, Starscream strafing my GI Joe in my bedroom as a kid. Just taking them out in like a bloodbath. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so <good>. yeah. <laughs> yeah GI Joes. Those were big with us too. Uh, we were just straight up brutal with those figures. It's war, man. It's war. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are no winners in war. It's, it's it's brutal business. Oh yeah, yeah. I think we we would put them on tees, baseball tees, and then uh, <laughs> we would put parachutes on their back. We'd rip them off of these other plastic toys and fashion them to the G.I. Joe figures. And then we would just bat them into the air as far as we could and then watch. And it was it was a cool idea, but they were they were breaking. We'd go pick them up and we're like, oh, this is worse than just like the uh, O-ring snapping in the middle or anything. You know, like this is arms coming off and we got to find the arm. And oh, yeah, yeah it was, we weren't very nice. Hours of fun, three and a half inches I, at a time. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's how it goes. Charles, thank you so much. I cannot sincerely thank you enough for hanging out with us. You, you've been here for so long and, and just answering all of our, our nerdy fan questions and for giving us a peek inside your work and your process and, and just kind of showing the side of, the, of Nosferatu and Wraith that we wouldn't otherwise get to see. So thank you so much. 
Oh, sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's really incredible just how many strong creatives lend their passion and abilities to every aspect of the show. And then it's also a bonus when they enjoy it as fans with us as well. So we really, really appreciate you geeking out with us a bit. Sure. Thanks. That's the end of another Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast. Uh, I've been Mike Caputo. And this is Anna Hoagie. Uh, we want to thank you guys so much for listening. Please head to either podclubhouse.com to listen to these episodes or download rate review subscribe on apple podcast or whatever you listen to podcast uh give us five stars five stars five stars five stars thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you next week Strong Creators Welcome, the Nosferatu Podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse, recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.